A young couple that I know finally conceived a baby after years of trying, after many, many months and untold dollars of fertility treatments. And they shared, after several months had gone by, this news with a small selection of their closest friends and with their family members. Everybody began to make all of the preparations, uh, the celebrations, natural to such a time. And then a few weeks later, the young woman suddenly began to bleed profusely and was rushed to the hospital. The doctor said that the baby's heart had stopped beating and that their child was lost. In the indescribable misery that filled them up in this particular moment, one of them said to me, it's just so hard, but I guess it's God's will. I have heard those words many times through the years. I have heard them in the face of all kinds of uh, difficult and, and dark circumstances. I've heard them even in recent days. A young mother dies, leaving behind a, a devastated spouse and four young children. Or, or a family's house is flooded out by a violent storm, destroying all the keepsakes of the generations, wiping them out with no obvious source of help and hope. Somebody uh, goes out to run a good race and ends up losing a limb or losing their life simply because they were in the wrong place when the bomb blast went off or when a car came speeding by. And in the midst of all this, people are prone still to cry out, trying to make sense of it all, blurting out in their confusion, I guess it is just the will of God. Is it? In what sense can we say that this suffering and groaning and aching and laboring that is so common to life is the will of God? In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The life of many, he says, is subjected to frustration. In so many ways, we live in bondage. We're chained to decay, it feels like. And he knows about this. He's suffered dramatic losses in his own life, the Apostle Paul has. But to what extent or in what sense are these things to be called the will of God? Many years ago, in the thick of World War II, a British pastor by the name of Leslie Weatherhead found himself so regularly approached by members of his church and community, asking for an explanation of what God could possibly be doing in the midst of the heartache of this war, that Weatherhead was moved to think deeply on the subject, to search the scriptures, his knowledge of theology and philosophy, and, and Weatherhead ultimately concluded that it is important when discussing the subject of God's will to always distinguish between three different dimension, dimensions of God's providence. 
Weatherhead suggested that we need to understand the difference between God's intentional will, God's circumstantial will, and God's ultimate will. And in the time we have remaining this morning, I want to touch briefly on the meaning of each of those dimensions of God's providence and start by entering the subject through the lens of a simple parable. I invite you to imagine with me a magnificent city set high atop a plateau, a headland, too lofty for any human being to attain on their own efforts. The book of Revelation pictures this city as a place where every citizen knows and loves and serves a wise and wonderful king. The intimacy of relationship that every citizen there has with the sovereign Lord of that place conditions completely the quality of life for everybody in that domain. There is a spirit of loving care that unites Everyone completely. They're there in that place. Nobody is ever sad or in want. There are no tears or crying or mourning or death or pain. Justice and joy triumph forever. And every good fruit grows up alongside the great river of grace that pours out from an eternal spring that bubbles up unstoppably from beneath the throne of the king. Are you getting the picture of this magnificent place? One day, the king decides to do something really amazing. He gives the orders to open the floodgates at the edge of the city to allow the eternal waters of his kingdom to float down the mountainside. And the spring that runs down, the river that runs down the mountainside, covers the barren wilderness below and results in a complete revitalization of that environment so that there grows up there in what was once simply empty space, a beautiful garden, and around it a village of joyful people. Now let's call that stream God's intentional will. It's his ideal, his original plan. The king wants the newly created valley and the villagers below to experience his bounty and beauty. He does not want to keep it to himself. His intention is that they enjoy the same life-giving, death-defeating, community-creating relationship with him that those above always do. Happy homes, healthy kids, peaceful neighborhoods, a pristine earth, the infirm and the impoverished provided for, everyone's gifts appreciated, gainfully employed, This is the king's first and original intention. Now imagine that a group of 
children from the village decide to come hiking their way up the mountain. They don't travel very far up the full length of it because the length is incalculable, but they come up far enough and they stop at a particular place and they begin to put twigs and mud and rocks into the stream. Why do they do it? Well, it's sort of fun to mess with things. That's the way kids are. They're creating, they're testing, they're trying their abilities. They have this idea that perhaps they know a better course for that stream than the one that it naturally takes. They think that maybe life will get better if they become lords of the flow themselves. Then at night, when the village kids have all gone home, a group of gang members come out of the caves. They live in the darkness of these caves beneath the village. The gang members are different than the village kids. They are older, a lot older. They are meaner. They are not even originally from the valley at all. At one time, they had lived, guess where? On the high plateau, within the walls of the celestial city. But jealous of the king's authority, they had rebelled. And they were banished to the caves below. Under cover of darkness, this gang now works to add to the dams and the diversions that the children have made. In time, the efforts of the children and of the cave dwellers block or muddy enough of the mountain stream that life in the valley village is progressively diminished, degree by degree by degree. Thirst and hunger begin to arise wherever it was to be. Sickness and conflict become the natural result of the stopping up of the flow from above. Some of the villagers are angry about this. They blame the mountain king for this. He's unloving. He doesn't care about us at all. Others say it's evidence he's not even up there. There is no mountain king. Some say their pain is evidence. It's obvious that their suffering is simply the king's goodwill. In essence, of course, this is the story that the Bible tells us. It says that God's original plan was that all of the creation be nurtured by the uninterrupted flow of his grace. Along the course of human history, a set of circumstances arise that distorts that outcome. It makes life in the human village a lot less than it was ever meant to be. We can argue all day, I suppose, about whether these circumstances might have been prevented. Some contend that God should never have given people the capacity to even think about doing things that would dam or muddy up the stream, the grace coming to them, that they wouldn't even have the capacity to ruin the environment for anybody else. Most of us, I suppose, are grateful that we have capacity that we have choice, that we're not automatons, that we have genuine moral freedom. Even though this means that someone can use the power to drive drunk, to cheat on a business deal, to lie to a neighbor, to plot to kill somebody. Some people also struggle to believe in the existence of this angelic gang of, of sorts that's dedicated to messing up God's good intentions where humanity is concerned. 
The Bible plainly says that this enemy exists. Our enemy, writes the Apostle Paul, is not merely, or our struggle, he writes, is not merely against flesh and blood. It's not merely against the village children. It's not against our neighbors, against ourselves. It's not simply against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are struggling against unseen, another class of beings who have exercised their moral freedom in harmful ways that negatively impact life on this earth in ways that's hard for us to imagine in the darkness uh, while we sleep. The older I get, the more I see of life, the more I experience of the monstrous inhumanities occurring every day, the easier I find to take that teaching of the Bible at its face value. I suppose we can also bat around the question of whether it is possible that the king could have designed the universe in such a way that there would not be the kind of physical laws that bring such pain and painful circumstances. It would be great, for example, if the uh, laws of of hydrodynamics, uh, hydrodynamics worked in such a way that, uh, that rain would fall, but in just the right measure to keep our lawns green. And then the laws of hydrodynamics would change, and the very thing that allowed the rain to fall would stop working so that water could never flood our basements. Um, it just would be impossible. It would be splendid if the explosive process of combustion that fired the pistons of our cars today and got us here to this place, if those same laws of combustion suddenly stopped working inside of the bomb that was made by some madman to destroy people. It would be marvelous if the chemicals that preserve our food did not have the potential in extreme amounts to also cause cancer cells to grow. And yet this is the way things are. This is the way things just are. We live in a morally free universe. We live in a law of, in a, in a universe of physical, consistent physical laws. And that means that violence and illness and accident are unavoidable possibilities. These circumstances are, I suppose, the will of God, but only in the limited sense that God permits them as the unavoidable downside to an intention, an arrangement, a flow of grace that is absolutely good. But here's where the second dimension of God's will comes in. Romans 8 tells us that those who surrender themselves to his calling experience God working in them and through them in spite of the often painful circumstances of this life. That even in the midst of the hardest circumstances, God is still able to accomplish his purposes in the lives of those who surrender themselves to him. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to block the flow of water running downhill. Think about it. I used to play at this when I was a kid. I was like one of those children I talked about before. There was a stream near my home, and my friends and I, we would construct our little dams in the stream. We'd come back the next day discouraged because the water had found a way 
It had run underneath our constructions, around our constructions. It had, it had bottled up and then flowed over our constructions. Water will find a way. And so it is with the living water of God's grace. He will find a way. Block the intentional will of God in some way and the circumstantial will of God, God's capacity to exercise his will even in the changed circumstances, will get his grace flowing downstream again to his beloved. The great secret is to cooperate with that grace's new direction when it comes. That's the key. Learning to recognize and cooperate with the change of plans. Some years ago, a woman that I know of became pregnant out of wedlock. The fact of her pregnancy at all was what you could call, I suppose, uh, an event that was outside of what we would term God's intentional will for her life. This woman couldn't uh, support even the children that she already had. She, She was without the covenant of marriage to provide the practical context uh, for, for optimally raising yet another child. Many people were counseling her at this point to uh, terminate the pregnancy, to abort this child. But she chose instead to turn her circumstances over to God, asking him to work some good out of this crisis caused by her moral choices and by physical laws. Right? That pregnancy was the result of both, moral choice and physical laws. Unbeknownst to this woman, uh, about whom I heard through another party, one fine spring day, unbeknownst to her, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, lived a couple who had been trying unsuccessfully for years to have a child. In fact, of their non-pregnancy, you might also think of as outside of the intentional will of God. Because these two possessed everything that you would associate with the capacity to be fruitful and multiplying. And that is sort of the original picture we get in Genesis of God's intentions. They, this is a couple you think, you looked at them and you said, these, these are the kinds of folks that we need as parents on this planet. I mean, good-hearted, thoughtful, creative, resourceful people. They had all of the moral and practical attributes that would make them ideal parents. And so at the very same time that that pregnant mom was turning her circumstances over to God, this couple that I mentioned were surrendering to God their circumstances, saying, Lord, if it's not possible for us to have a baby the way that we have wanted to, show us how we can have a child, raise a wonderful child to continue this race, to to advance our faith outside of our given circumstances. We're open to seeing what you might do. And D.L. Moody once said that what God can do with one life, even one life, fully surrender to God, this world has yet to see. What God can do with one life fully surrendered to him is almost beyond imagination. And in the months that followed, I saw what God could do with three people 
willing to surrender their difficult circumstances to him. I saw the streams of God's redeeming grace suddenly converge, flowing around the circumstances and converge in a hospital delivery room, where once there was only the mud of one woman's chaos and the dam of a couple's unfulfilled dreams, God brought flowing forth a new family through the channel of adoption, and you know what? It turned out to be twins. I wish I had a picture of them. They are grown, fabulous young women. Uh, One is named Grace and the other Christina, little Christ. What I want to ask you in closing this morning is where is there an area of your life right now in which the flow of God's intentions may have gotten stuck momentarily? Maybe you have gotten stuck in an unfulfilling job or you're without one. Or perhaps you are thirsty for a loving relationship. Or perhaps sin or illness has clogged your hope for the future. Or you find yourself needing the water of God's spirit to refresh your parched soul or renew your moral resolve or float you out of some wilderness you've gotten marooned in. The circumstances of your life right now, this is the point, these circumstances seem like rocks and mud blocking the flow of grace that you sorely need. Ask yourself this question. Can mere debris, even big debris, stop forever the mighty river that flows from the eternal springs of the king? Can mere debris do it? Not a chance, writes the Apostle Paul. Not a chance. Nothing can finally separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, the flow of God's intentional will may get blocked and delayed for a season. The flow of his circumstantial will may await your further surrender to work its way out. But in the end, nothing's going to stop his ultimate will. He is going to redeem and he's going to restore you and this creation as you yield yourself to him. He is going to take everything that we are and make it everything it can be. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Do you sense his calling on your life? If the answer is yes, then say this to him today. Show me the crack, Lord. Show me the new channel. Show me the fresh way that you are moving in my life now. Help me cooperate with that movement, Lord. For as Pastor Brian Wilkerson reminds us, We can't always know the reasons for the hard things that happen to us in this life. Sometimes the tragedies of this life are simply unreasonable from the standpoint of the human mind. But when life seems to us not but chaos or wilderness, please remember that still a river runs through it. And that river is the unstoppable purposes of a very good and a very gracious 
God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Amen.